0: My name is Eric Brennan. I am, I was, a graduate student of archaeology at the University of Toronto. I'm writing this because I feel I need to make some kind of record of what happened to me and my partner, James Merrick, on our field season to South Central Turkey in the summer of 1989. Because none of our notes and collections have survived, the events I am about to recount are likely to be the only record ever made of our excavation at Choban tepeshi I, more than anyone, resent the inevitability that my memories will likely be discarded as incredulous and of little value to future investigators. If archaeology can really be said to be a true science, one of models and predictions that we can use to understand human behavior, and there is no room in scholarship for the kind of subjective account of our experiences that I am leaving here. Still, there needs to be a truthful recounting of what happened to James. It isn't fair to him or his loved ones that it remains a sensational headline. And, I think, maybe... If I can get it out, maybe if I tell someone, maybe then the dreams will stop." As master students, James and I had assisted our advisor, Professor David Sugarman, in compiling an exhaustive archaeological survey of the Kanya Basin in south-central Turkey. We had found a multitude of Bronze and Iron Age sites, as well as an abundance of medieval fields, abandoned villages, and roads that ran through the area in the Byzantine era, but which were abandoned by the Ottomans. What interested James and I most, though, were a handful of large, circular mounds we had found dotting the landscape and a few clusters nestled in several valleys. At the time... Nothing was known of the early prehistory of Anatolia, or even the Near East in general for that matter. Our data came almost exclusively from a handful of sites found in Israel, the most famous of which was Jericho. This left huge gaps in our understanding of how the beginnings of agriculture had developed in not only a chronological, but a geographical context. How had the first domesticated plants spread across the Near East? Was it an abrupt and deliberate effort by hunter-gatherers to alter the morphology of seeds through selective breeding? Or was the change from foraging wild domesticates to intensive agriculture less deliberate, more start-and-stop, or even accidental? How were people surviving in those times? Was the climate amenable to lush plant life, which could have discouraged early horticultural experimentation in favor of continued foraging? Were people primarily hunting for subsistence? Could such an ecosystem have even supported sedentary communities? The novelty of my thesis was going to be an attempt to combine the predictive models developed in climatology with the data obtained from controlled excavation samples in order to begin to make sense of the ancient ecosystem. And the way these people, who transitioned to a completely new way of living and eating, must have been exploiting the landscape around them. If my ambitions were successful, then I wouldn't only be contributing to our understanding of the Neolithic, but also advancing our methodological approaches by integrating new data sets like dendrochronological core samples and more accurate advances in radiocarbon dating than had previously been used on Neolithic materials. James, on the other hand, fancied himself of the old-school cultural historian mindset, much to our advisor's chagrin. He was more interested in art history and the more wishy-washy interpretations of ancient ideology. James's work was focused mostly on late Bronze Age and early Iron Age, and in retrospect, he didn't have much practical reason to be there working with me. Of course, he reasoned, these old sites often have later occupations settled on top of them. And before we had begun our expedition, he mused of finding evidence of Hittite, or old Assyrian reuse of the site. The truth is that over the last semester, James and I had become... close. He was sort of the Aubrey to my maturin, and when you have a partner like that, only to have your back in the field, you don't leave them on the sidelines. We arrived at the village of Suruvadi in Kanya in mid-June, a few hours after being picked up at the airport by Eamon Yavuz, our trusted local consultant from the Kanya survey project, who drove us out to the site and would help us to get settled in with the locals. We parked at the edge of the dusty little village and walked through the town. On our way, we passed by a coffee shop where Eamon introduced us to several of the village elders, who sat smoking and reading newspapers. We greeted them with an enthusiastic handshake and a friendly exchange of merhabas. Along the way, through the central dull incline of the valley over which the town was built, we passed a group of school kids playing an afternoon game of soccer, who paused in their dribbling to wave and shout at us. Then, The dry dirt path up towards the foothills became a more arduous hike. And after a good 20 minutes, just before James and I began to really dread the logistical challenge of porting the excavation equipment each morning this far uphill, the mound itself came into view. It was long and wide, and our later measurements would show it to be about 250 meters in diameter and 15 meters high. Most ancient tells that I had worked at in the past tended to be relatively oblong in shape, but this mound was almost perfectly spherical. It's nestled beneath the bulk of the great peaks that loomed over the valley, just to the right of the central path that ran up the mountains. James, Amen, and I climbed the steep slope of the mound to stand upon its flat surface, a firm breeze licked us from that height. From the ruins' vantage, we could see the tops of the buildings of Suruvadi downhill in the distance as orange bumps on the dimming light and long shadows of sunset. And Eamon explained to us that the locals called it Choban Tepeshi, or Herder's Hill, because it stood just to the right of the path through the mountains that the local shepherds would drive their goats. At that, it was hard for me not to imagine such a place as some migratory haven for prehistoric pastoral nomads, and I suspect in James's mind he imagined it could be a node in the network of old Assyrian donkey caravans. I whispered to James, I'm not seeing any sign of anything later up here. Are you sure you're in on this? Are you kidding? James scoffed. Look at this thing. Do you know how big this is? This is unprecedented. We could build our whole careers off of this. There's almost certainly some later sites down in the valley you could work on. Eamon's contacts in the village could tell us where they are. You... You don't have to waste your time on this, I explained. Well, all that aside, you're going to need some help getting started. And I want to get inside this bitch and find out what she's hiding, James said with a snide chuckle. After we had returned to town, we were lucky enough to receive an impromptu invitation to local wedding festivities that were going on that evening. We met many of the townspeople and ate of copious kebab and baklava, and were even dragged into a bit of dancing. Over dinner, we met with one of the village elders who'd been in attendance, and chatted about the town itself, the economy, gossip of the local community, and of course, the town's history. Our contact, Mustafa, informed us that, although Suruvati had been a place of interest for each of the great empires who had spread forth into Turkey, that the village itself was in no way a continuation of such experiments. It had been forcibly settled by the Ottomans in the 18th century as a trading outpost. Once the novelty of strangers had begun to simmer, we were finally able to ask, with Eamon as our translator, whether we would have the community's blessing to begin excavation at old Choban Tepeshi, in exchange for providing compensated labor for several of the village workmen, of course. After Eamon asked, the old man seemed to pause, his tone rather more dour than before, as he responded asking Eamon several questions. He asks why you would want to dig there. He says it is not interesting, and anyways, there are many more ruins dotting the landscape, including a Roman aqueduct and a Byzantine church. James leaned over Amon's shoulder. Tell him, tell him that we think that Choban Tepeci is very old, and we think that what is within it will be very interesting to us. Tell him, tell him what's inside that mound may put his town on the map. Amen translated this to Mustafa, who laughed and whistled, but whose tones seemed to again sour as he continued to speak. He says that that is all well and good, but you will have a great deal of trouble finding workmen who are willing to work with you. Why is that? I asked. It says that there are many strange old legends and superstitions about the hill, and that ever since he was a boy, people say they have seen ghosts up there, that sort of thing. What sort of legends? James asked. Eamon relayed the question. The village elder motioned for us to lean in and listen. From his pocket, he produced a cigarette which he lit and took a deep drag from as he started to tell his story in a hushed and grave tone. Eamon did his best to translate as he went. There's an old story, he says, a legend that the Christians who lived here must have started, but which was still spoken of when he was a boy. They say, you know, that when Cain was cast out of paradise for killing Abel and made to wander, that he came here to these mountains. This mountain there lived a jinn, and both forsaken by God, Cain forsook his wife and fell in love with it. Was the djinn a man or a woman? asked James. Amen tried to translate. The man laughed and told a snappy joke that had Amen also chuckling. It was a djinn, stupid. Does it matter? Anyway, our translator continued, they say that underneath the mound, Cain buried a gift he had offered that demon. Did they say what kind of gift? Amen asked the old man and replied, No, but like some kind of jewelry or something. Some treasure, as one gives to a wife. The old man continued. Anyway, they say sometimes the demon and his children come back to the mountains when they are feeling sentimental. That's just the oldest one I know about. There are countless superstitions the villagers share. You know, people seeing ghosts looking down on them from the crags. "'Cousins of cousins going missing when they go up there at night, that sort of thing. "'Every shepherd here knows to avert his gaze when he brings his goats past through the mountains. "'Who can say when the superstition started? "'As for me, I am at core an atheist, but you know how it is. "'If people think something is true, then it becomes true. "'And so, I think you will have a hard time finding people willing to go up there day in and day out.' And, overall, you will have all sorts of problems. We'll take our chances, I said. Just ask respectfully if he would put a word out for laborers. We will happily pay double the daily wage, and tell him that we want to thank him for all this helpful information. Amen explained this, and the old man agreed. We wished the old man good night and returned to our guesthouse in town. The next morning, after much discussion over eggs and coffee, James and I decided we would pitch a tent at the base of the site rather than rent an apartment in town. This would save us some time and energy instead of porting our equipment up the slope, as well as offer James and I some privacy from the prying attitudes of the locals. Later in the morning, we spoke again with Mustafa and Amin at the village coffee shop where we met with the men who had come willing to till the mound alongside us. We had expected to find 12 men to work on with us through the summer, but we ended up with only 7. Ahmet, Yusuf, Borak, Ismail, Mehmet, Omer, and Hassan. Don't worry about it. We won't want to open up too many trenches until we know what we're dealing with anyways, James reasoned. We waved goodbye to Eamon for the last time before he would return to his office in Ankara, leaving us to fend for ourselves with our broken Turkish, and began our march up the slope with our fellow laborers. When we reached the top, I suggested that we should start by opening up three-by-three-meter test pits in three different areas of the mound, one southeast of its center, one north of its center, and one west of its center. Often, when first beginning to excavate a site, we would at least be able to open up a trench based on some exposed features or artifact scatters strewn across the surface. But at this site, with no variation in elevation and no surface debitage to speak of, we left our initial penetrations to random chance. It would be important to have some sampling of the vertical stratigraphy and chronological layers of the site in order to date our later findings and the promise of indexical artifacts, or the reveal of architectural features, would be icing on the cake. We would, also, of course, need time to train our fellow workers in the careful procedures of conservation, collection, and recording that we were keeping to. I supervised Barak and Ismail at the North Trench, while James supervised Omer, Mehmet, and Yusuf at the Southeast. Hassan and Ahmet, who claimed to have had some previous work experience on a local Byzantine period excavation, took the West Trench, with strict orders to consult us at the first sign of any change in the quality of the soil. Once we had made it through the surface layer, the next meter and a half of unexposed sediment was nothing more than a tall deposition of loose sand with an ashen pallor. There were no artifacts or features to be found in the layer, but we did collect numerous samples of seashells, which astounded us, because it suggested that at one point in the distant past, a group of people must have intentionally buried whatever was under the long mound in an enormous layer of sand carried hundreds of kilometers away from the coastline. After that first morning of digging, the north test pit I had dug had revealed a turgid mixture of bones found in situ and from sifting the topsoil down to the occupied level. We also hit along the corner of a plaster wall that seemed to suggest the segmentation of a trash midden. Here, I could not have been more lucky in the results of our initial penetrations, because the trash pit would deliver quality ecofactual data with which I could make projections regarding the diets of the site's past inhabitants and the ancient ecosystem, perfect for my dissertation. James's southeast trench revealed another stroke of mad luck beneath the same deep layer of deposited sand that covered the whole site. His excavation had uncovered the edge of a building's wall. This had slowed down digging on his end of the site as he carefully descended around the remains of the architecture. We had immediate confirmation now that, although the occupation of the site appeared to predate the use of ceramic vessels in the ancient Near East, They were already using clay and stucco to plaster walls, which had been painted a deep orange color that contrasted noticeably with the light-colored sand above. The third test pit, on the western end of the tell, which our veteran workers, Hassan and Ahmet, tilled, revealed an even more impressive assemblage than James's pit. They, too, had it the remains of an ancient wall, again formed of the same clay foundation and covered in stucco but this time bearing an exceptional piece of ornamentation. The skull of a great bull, likely an aurochs, its great horns molded in a dark coat of clay and plaster, affixed hanging from the top of the wall. It was an intentional expression of meaning, revealed to living eyes for the first time in millennia. Someone had mounted this skull and modified it to send a message to someone else. But what and to whom. James was ecstatic. That evening, at our dinner after the find, he could not stop raving to me and spinning his wild conjecture. There is a recognizable belief system embedded here. There is some message that skull was trying to send to people. Maybe it was apotropaic, like the way lions and gargoyles are left outside temples to scare off evil spirits. Maybe it indicates that the person who lived behind the wall was important. Or maybe it signals some kind of clan or familial group within the site. Maybe it's just a nice decoration, I chided. Eric, don't be ridiculous. Everything is ideology. You cannot possibly escape it. We sat together by the fire pit we had established further up on the mountain slope, holding steaming mugs of tea in our hands and draped in blankets for warmth. A chilly breeze rasped across the hill's dusty surface. We looked out over the whole valley, the mound a shadowy bulge just beside us, and in the distance beneath the crags rose the jagged roofs of the town, the towering shadow of its minaret, and the orange glow of its few streetlights. Out on the barren landscape, the stars glinted above us in their full wild splendor, like cold diamonds in the inky blue night sky. Do you ever get the feeling like like there's something wrong with what we're doing? Asked James. What do you mean? I asked. I mean, we're disturbing what might have been a very important place, where people might have spent their entire lives and were about to dismantle it. That's why we record it so carefully, I said. Thorough enough that anybody reading our site notes could put the whole thing back together if they wanted. Yeah, but think about it. Do you think that people who thought they were being buried for eternity would care about whether assholes like us could put the puzzle back together?" I laughed. I think you're a few degrees too late to be having these kinds of doubts. Through that night, there was a great swelling of the wind, and already just after midnight, a cloud of sand could be seen sweeping along the side of the mountain. The wailing gusts battered the sides of our tent, And the two of us bundled up together in our sleeping bags, waiting for the dust storm to settle, and for sleep to come. But as the night drew on, the moaning of the wind began to take on a different shape. Now, the noises no longer sounded like the acoustics of the stone, slope, and billowing air. Rather, like the pained braying and wailing of strange animals in the night. Whatever was out there in the storm began to sound all at once, like the howling of wolves, the bleeding of goats, and the yowling of wildcats. And yet, it was distinct from any one of those particular noises, so that neither James nor I could quite put our finger on whatever it was. The next morning, We walked around looking for animal traps or any evidence of what had made the noise, but it was to no avail. All that we found were a series of stone piles, no doubt left by lollygagging shepherds who passed their flocks through the trail across the mountain slope.